Hello and welcome to this episode of The Evil Eye. I am your co-host Robert Scavarla. And I am your other co-host Sam Deegan. And this is not Christmas, so Happy New Year. Yeah, we're gonna have to do a Christmas episode in like July or something. Just... Or next year if the podcast exists at that point. Uh, if we haven't all been blown up, yes. I mean, I wasn't thinking about that. I was just thinking the lifespan of most podcasts doesn't extend beyond like 10 episodes. Yeah, but I wasn't they're... thinking of like World War Three, but... Given the current geopolitical climate we are in right now, it's certainly a possibility. Well, there are so many goth movies to talk about still. Exactly. And we are talking about another one today. We are talking about the greatest goth movie of all time, Turbulence 3 Heavy Metal. In a way, I want to say that this movie is... It's the gothest movie of all time. Well, I also... This movie might be the reason that we started this podcast because... It's the uh, banner image on our Facebook page. Yes. And there was a night, maybe like a year or two ago. Like a year and a half, I think. Yeah. Where we had like an impromptu goth movie marathon and we watched things you would expect. The craft. The craft and the crow. And Black Circle Boys. And fucking Black Circle Boys. Which will be featured on here at some point. Yes, it will. Shout out to David Dakota. And we watched... You introduced me to this for the first time. And I was like, this is the greatest movie I've ever seen in my entire life. I've introduced like multiple crowds of people to this movie, which is funny because the first time I saw it, I hated it. There's a review. There's a review of this on Cinepunks when I first started doing a goth movie column for them where... I am not positive in my outlook on this movie because I think it was like the second time I had seen it. And the first two or three times I saw it, I don't know why I kept coming back to it. Well, I mean, I know why I kept coming back to it. There's a certain magnetism about this that just draws you in. But the first time or two, I was I was confused because the movie is confusing to laypersons. Let's put it that way. People who are not familiar with the nuances of goth culture, but as someone who had been steeped in it, I was also confused because the references they were making didn't make sense. And this movie is kind of what I would phrase as like a serious spoof. It's not a pastiche. It's not satire. They play everything straight, but it's all intended to be silly. Yeah, I would say this falls under one of the categories we've discussed in the past of movies about goths made by people who don't know shit about goth music or goth culture i think they do actually like the more i've watched it like and that's the nuances i love that you've watched it so many times you're now picking up little new layers (laughs) yes so i watched it literally two hours before we started recording and even just then i picked up on little things that i didn't notice initially or even the third or fourth time so the movie is surprisingly clever for a sequel a The third sequel in a series, B, and a spoof of many different things happening culturally at that time. Yeah, and it's definitely, I'm sure we'll talk about this as we go, but it's definitely a product of its time. Very much so, yes. And 
I think it's also the sort of movie where if you don't have any experience with direct-to-video sequels, you will be extra confused. Which is a shame because this movie should have played in a theater. And I think the only theater it played in was because of me. Oh, yes. And that was a wonderful day. I uh, screened this for a crowd of people at Philomoka as part of uh, an action movie marathon. Or was it a bad movie marathon? It was the bad which. movie marathon. It was a bad movie marathon. This is not a bad movie, but knowing the type of people who go to a marathon like that, I knew this movie would kill. And it did. I think it was the second movie in the marathon. And it brought the house down. I mean, it, it basically... It's like a direct-to-video goth version of Die Hard 2 with Satanists. Yes. So this movie spoofs a number of different things, um, disaster movies being one, but also in the 90s there was a subgenre of action movies, Die Hard on a. So there was Die Hard in a Hockey Ring, uh, the Jean-Claude Van Damme movie, um, Sudden Impact? Not Sudden Impact. Um, What's the one where he fights the Pittsburgh Penguin? It's so good. The, it is. The title is escaping me right same. now. But they so all have the same sort of titles. PM Entertainment, um, a creator of low-budget action movies, made many of them. There was the famous Nicole uh, Anna Nicole Smith skyscraper, Die Hard in a skyscraper. Yes. Even though Die Hard itself was in a skyscraper. So this was a subgenre of movies in the 90s, which this movie parodies because this is Die Hard on a Plane, which... The original Turbulence kind of was. So Die Hard 2 is also set on a fucking plane. Yes. But. Executive Action, the Kurt Russell movie, Con Air. These Uh, were all spoofs. What's the Harrison Ford one? Um, Oh, Air Force One. Air Force One. Yeah, so there were many um, Die Hard on a Plane movies prior to this. And I love movies set on a plane, whether it's the action movies like that, disaster movies like Airport, Airport 75, Skyjacked, horror movies like Terror at 10,000 Feet. So good. Or personal favorite direct video flight of the living dead i've never seen that it was uh it came out after snakes on a plane but it which was which i've also never seen snakes on a plane is not good it was not good at the time it wasn't a funny joke to begin with flight of the living dead though flight of the living dead that one it's something it's not good but it's entertaining but oh. my point is that i love movies set on airplanes and this is absolutely one have you ever seen the horrible Wes Craven movie. Red Eye? Yes. Yes, with Cillian Murphy and Rachel Adams. Yes. Nick Adams, however you say her name. And I like both of them, especially Cillian Murphy, but the movie is one of the worst things I've maybe ever seen, and I saw it in a theater. Continuing the tradition of me mispronouncing things because I am a uh, Philistine. (laughs) I'm sorry. Did I say Philistine right? You did, actually. Damn it, I should have said Philistine. Uh... Before we get too far into talking about disaster movies and airplane movies, we have to talk about the rules. Oh, yes. We have to talk about the rules because this is a goth movie podcast and goths have rules. Damn it, Liam. We have rules. Well, I think also at some point we maybe are going to have to come up with our own actual rules because these are... These are the rules. They're hard to explain. Okay, so... If you have followed us from the first podcast, as you all have because you're all longtime listeners... Yes, you will know that our rules are outlined based on a movie called Goth, because the most Goth movie, excluding this one, has to be called Goth. It's true. And the rules in that With movie were... With the main were, character also named Goth. Uh, rule number one, embrace the darkness. Rule number two, kill your fear. And rule number three, live for death. I okay. don't know how you can apply those rules to this movie, but we'll figure that out at the end of they the episode. They apply. They apply. <laughs> so... 
Turbulence 3 Heavy Metal came out in 2001. It was a direct-to-video sequel to the Turbulence franchise, which first starred Ray Liotta as a crazy person, because that's what he is. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that might be hard to understand if you're not used to seeing direct-to-video sequels is a lot of these, like, quote-unquote franchises share things like like the turbulence franchise it shares the name turbulence and the setting of a plane and fucking nothing else aside from craig i was gonna say so (laughs) one of the stars in this movie was also in turbulence 2 a direct-to-video sequel starring different characters craig chef craig sheffer as totally different characters and that movie turbulence 2 fear of flying is nowhere near as good as this or the first one. It's actually a bad sequel. Yeah, the first one, it's basically... Ray Liotta did a bunch of coke, and that's it. it yeah, Ray Liotta on coke rampaging on an airplane is basically the whole movie. But It's, 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 it's highest endorsement. It's actually fantastic and entertaining. It's, it's like this guy is accused of all these crimes, and he's arrested. He insists he's innocent. And but is he? But is he? He is not. Spoiler he is alert. not. No, uh, because he's Ray Liotta, and Ray Liotta is always a bad person in movies. Sure, most movies. And he's being transported on plane on like New Year's Eve or Chris, sorry, Christmas Eve. So technically, Turbulence is a Christmas movie. We're not getting into that. <laughs> um, it's no longer Christmas. I don't have to worry about that stupid holiday for another year. Santa can go to his... Don't say bad things about Santa. Santa can go to his child slave labor island for another 360-some days, and I don't have to worry about him. No, Christmas is sooner than that. Get ready for it. But The point is, Turbulence Turbulence is a fine movie. Turbulence 2 is not. Turbulence 3, Heavy Metal, Heavy Metal being the subtitle, even though it's a goth movie, is amazing. We probably should say that this movie confuses terms like death metal and death rock are used sort of interchangeably and i don't think they outright call anyone goth one of the things i mentioned in my initial review and one of my reasons for scorn initially not realizing i think it may have been intentional but this was made in 2001 by a foreign director jorge montesi who was mostly Someone who worked in TV and I believe Spanish television for most of his life prior to this. Yeah, I think he's Chilean and he, I didn't realize like until we were preparing for this episode, all the shit he worked on. Yes. Like the weird thing about this movie, and we'll talk about the cast a little bit <laughs> later, but the weird thing about this movie is everyone involved with it is super prolific and yes. has done you have seen them like, in many things or you've watched things they've made. Well, and so. Montesi worked on a lot of television, lots of made-for-TV movies, and he worked on a bunch of shows I watched as a kid, like such as Highlander, which is probably my favorite show of all time, which is a story for another day. Sure. Uh, Forever Night, which we should cover at some point on this podcast. So I can definitely see how he would end up making something like this. Yeah. Fucking 21 Jump Street. He worked on the Friday the 13th TV series. And so that's because of the style of editing in this. It's that post-classical MTV style of editing, but it's spoofing that in parts. So there's lots of things about this movie that are much smarter than you would probably give it credit for upon first viewing, such as me. I didn't realize until I had seen it. A dozen more times because I've watched this movie at least. I watch this movie probably twice a year for some reason. Because it's amazing. And really, the editing, it's so... Like, when I first saw it, I thought, 
maybe that was an unintentional thing where it just that's the time period when it came out but the more you watch it you realize that the way it's shot and edited is totally spoofing that style and it's hilarious and many of the jokes in there craig sheffer particularly as a super hacker in the style of the movie hackers but a parody of that like someone's dad with a goatee yeah so (laughs) let's get to the plot of the movie such as there is one the plot upon like just basic very simple first glance involves a death rocker that's what they call him right he's basically supposed to be marilyn manson he's supposed to be marilyn manson but he has an even cooler name slade craven he dresses like manson maybe a little bit like Roz williams i'm not sure if they were making that reference or not well i think manson and Roz williams just both happen to have long straight black hair right and i think manson took some of his own image from Roz williams and himself. alice cooper yeah yes so Slade, Cra- Slade Craven, a death rocker, is streaming, because it's 2001 and you could stream at that point, he's streaming his final concert on a streaming service, Z-Web TV, and it's happening on a plane. And they're trying to get 10 million viewers, for some arbitrary reason, because 10 million people could log on to a website in 2001 and not crash it. Yeah, that's... Uh... With full streaming video. Yeah, all of this is impossible to believe. I mean, if you think about the fact that Joe Bob crashed Shutter. Like, there's no way 10 million people are logging in to watch a concert on an airplane and not crashing, like, the banking system. But then there are other subplots happening around this. So let's let's mention the cast for a moment, because the cast, and this is every mid-aughts USA Network TV show character actor you Every seen. single one. So it's amazing. The main subplot is Gabrielle Arnoir is an FBI agent in the Cybercrimes Division, and she's tracking a super hacker, Craig Sheffer, because obviously, for the last two years, and now she's discovered his location, but Sheffer has hacked into the mainframe of Z-Web TV, and now he sees on the live feed that something is amiss on the plane. Concurrent to that happening, there is also Joe Montagna, is that how you say his name? It sure is. Who is her a FBI pr- a boss. A pre-criminal minds, Joe Montagna, so it's yes. like he's in training. He is her FBI <laughs> boss, her exasperated FBI boss, who is hanging out with um, a comic relief misogynist TV director. I don't quite understand what the joke was there. Me but neither. The director of Z-Web, who is so incompetent, he can't really notice that the plan is being hijacked. But he's hanging out with Joe Montagna and Joe Montagna's sidekick. Watching this is kind of like a great chorus, observing what's happening and just kind of making jokes the entire and time or just you know doing oh, why would you do that kind of comments it's the typical joe montagna performance but he also looks bored so bored <laughs> like like he probably shot all of his scenes in one day and i think was he's pissed the only one who didn't there. realize it was a uh spoof because he just he plays the character he plays in every show and he's just over it Well, and the great thing about shows like CSI, especially fucking CSI Miami. The great thing? There's nothing great about those shows. No, is that most of the actors are aware, like anyone with any talent on those shows is aware of how hammy the dialogue is. And so they play it up. And that is sort of what's missing here is he doesn't play it up at all. He just deadpans everything. And you're like, come on, give us a little of that criminal minds juice. What's the guy? What's the csi style show with the goth forensic scientist uh that's nc uh was that ncis 
I tried watching that a few times and I hated it. Not necessarily her character, which was her, what I would expect from yeah. any portrayal of a goth character on a mainstream show, but... My college roommate was obsessed with NCIS, so I've seen a lot of episodes. Who and... under 50 is obsessed with NCIS? I got nothing. I was going to say, the audience for those shows was always, like, boomers. But, like, old boomers, not just, like, the younger end of that age range. Yeah, I mean... I also like to watch like Midsummer Murders and like British murder mystery shows that old people watch. So I'm not in a position to judge anyone's taste in television. I feel like those shows are different because they're just so those like crime procedurals are always just so boring for me at least. And they always have this veneer of luridness that never is delivered upon. If I want to watch something lurid, I'm going to watch like forensic files where real people are doing really fucked up things. Sure. And I mean, the entire, uh, what, what is that channel called? Oh, I crime. ID, I, the ID identity. channel. The ID channel is, is amazing. Women who so kill. Incredible. It's the horrific. Bizarre ass shows that they have. It's like my favorite murder, but not awful and entertaining. I don't know how we got on this subject. <laughs> because we oh, were talking about Joe Montana. Yeah. So they start the movie with, Slade Craven and his band walking onto the plane and all of the goth fans losing their shit. All but, of the like 20 goth fans. I was going to say the 20 goth <laughs> fans and his Slade Craven's band who look like outcasts from a new metal cover band. One of them has like a cowboy hat with a stripe across his face. And none of these people look like anyone I knew who was a goth in 2001, nope. except for one guy on the plane who had a goatee and a skullet. Oh, yes. Which was a goth look and still is. Do you mean the guy who gets electrocuted? No, there's a, an extra who was probably an actual goth. He's in the background and you can see he has like a skullet, like he's missing all the hair on top and he has like a long goatee. Do they ever explain why those certain people are allowed on the plane? Like, did they, they win some kind of contest? I, I don't think assume. they say. They found some pretty ladies who look like they are not goths. Like the At most all. wholesome goths you will ever see. Yeah, but, the, the girl who describes... Slade Craven as a serious artist. Didn't one of them call him a babe? Uh, yeah, that's the sl it's like the slutty one and her serious friend. Yes. So <laughs> they're getting onto the plane. And I will I will admit there's something clever here. Um, when they're getting onto the plane, I feel like this is what actually like the idea for the movie. The screenwriter was probably watching people going through the metal detector at an airport. And he's like, how do you sneak a gun onto a plane? You dress like a goth because they wear all metal. Pretty much. So it opens with the band and everybody getting onto the plane and they're all going through the metal detector and Slade Craven has an upside down cross and all kinds of metal on and the woman who's wanding him down, she points out the cross and she's like, what is this? And he's just like, it's who I am, baby. Yeah, he says like the sign of the devil. Also, Something like that. you have really pretty eyes. It's like, what? But that sign <laughs> of the devil is important for something that happens later. So there's a lot of like setting things up and things getting paid off. The whole like Chekhov's yes. gun idea. They're... Or in this case, Chekhov's electric chair. Which is one of the things that I think is actually great about this movie is it takes its running time seriously. Like there's not a whole lot of lag there's it, so in a lot of these direct-to-video sequels, part of what I like about many of them is that there are so many non sequiturs. Things happen for no fucking reason, but yes. in this movie, everything for the most part happens for a reason, or something happens and you find out why later on. Uh yeah, no, totally. Everything. That's one of the reasons why I think 
I've learned to appreciate this movie. You notice the little things that they're setting up. One of the problems with lots of B-movies, regardless of whether they're direct-to-video sequels or not, is that people, the people making the movies don't know how to make movies. And they're just doing things they think are cool. So what they're setting up is... I mean, they're not setting things up. They're just doing things because they think it's cool. So nothing really gets delivered upon. Scenes happen and wander off into the distance. And it's part of the charm of B-movies. But when you see one like this, where it's setting things up and paying them off, it's interesting in a way. And I'm always wondering who went to the trouble of looking through the script to make sure things made sense. Because a lot of things do make sense in this movie. It's disarmingly competent. Like it's we shouldn't be, competent. we shouldn't be surprised at uh, the fact that a movie with a budget and you know an experienced crew is competent, and yet here we are. But this is also so as they're getting onto the plane. This is also where they start confusing things. They start calling him a death rocker, um, and he plays industrial metal. I guess we can call it that kind of new metal. Yeah, the, it's the musical bad. cues are all obnoxious early on, and I think it's intentional. It's kind of like a cross between industrial and new metal. Yeah, it, it definitely is supposed to be a Marilyn Manson ripoff. And but not a good one. <laughs> no. And I don't think there are any good Manson ripoffs, really. I can't think of any, personally. But, but there are also, within the movie, there are shots of him performing live on the plane. And then there are also clips taken from his music videos, which are so hilarious. So after they get on the plane, we get the title sequence, which is a music video for his hit single, Razor Electric, because that's what you title a song if you're a goth band. Isn't there another song called like Love is a Gun or Love is a Bullet or something? I think Love is a Gun. But the music (laughs) video in particular is kind of entertaining because it's just shots of Craven walking down a hallway and doing all kinds of dumb or ridiculous things at one point you know, throwing up the Hitler salute because I guess that's what goths did. Oh, yeah, he goose steps steps, at one point. Which I guess there is a tradition of artists doing that as a way of mocking, you know, polite society. I don't think that's the intention here. Like Susie Sue. Um, Or Roz Williams. Manson's done it. Sure. Many people have done it. Um, But here I think it's just to show him as being an edgy kind of guy or person. Um, It's never clear. They set up a comment later where it's never clear. Uh, I guess you could say he's androgynous. I don't think he's really that androgynous. I think it's just 2001 and there's a dude with long hair wearing makeup. I suppose. But moving on. So from there, we are introduced to Craig Sheffer, who is super hacker. Yes. He's wearing all blue. His glasses are like <laughs> the Aussie glasses with a blue tint. He's wearing a bandana and he's wearing a button-up shirt that are all light blue because hackers dress like this? Yeah, he's he's sort of like if you have a weird stoner uncle who <laughs> who probably listens to Dave Matthews Band or something, that's how he looks. I was going to say, he looks more, not Dave Matthews Band, more like the 80s kind of Hesher uncle who listens to Def Leppard, you know? Okay, that I could also see. And but I like Def Leppard. I so. do too. So he's sitting there, you know, hacking the mainframe. And one of my favorite moments comes up as we see. So the hacking screens on his computer are very similar to the movie Hackers. But at one point, there's a little pop up that says, please step back. The crack is at work, 
which I lose it at every time I see it. <laughs> it's so good. Because it's so ridiculous. And I think, again, that's why I think this is intentional. A lot of the things that are happening are done purposely. Do we remember what year Hackers is? Like Hackers 96? Is like 90, I think it's 95. Okay. Um, so, it's 95 yeah. or 96. It, but it... It definitely, at some points, is very self-conscious about how it's making fun of... These movies. Yeah. But it plays it completely serious, so it's not like those 2000s... What were those guys? Seltzer and Friedberg, who did, like, Epic Movie and all of those awful airplane-style parodies of movies? Oh, I don't know those. Oh, my God, they're awful. So it's post-scary movie, post-airplane. So I've never seen Scary Movie. Scary Movie is fine. Scary Movie 2 is better. Everything after that don't bother with i mean airplane i obviously love but those were such big hits that there became like a minor genre in the 2000s where i think the two prominent people their names i think were seltzer and friedberg and they made epic movie and i think maybe date movie was another one okay i definitely saw the sort of like 80s version of that like kentucky fried movie and things like that so this was also in the era of not another teen movie which is good but these which i also haven't seen these were not these were just the dregs of comedy so it's not intentionally making fun of things in that way where i don't even know if you can call that parody it's just the dumbest form of humor possible it's doing humor it's doing the characters but making them wink at the camera this doesn't do that it plays it completely serious which is partially why it works yeah i would agree with that i mean some of the dialogue it's the first time you see it, you're like, Craig Sheffer, how did this happen to you? How did you go from Nightbreed to this? But how did his career end up where it did in general? That's a good question. I don't know, but... He's still working today, so good for him. Yeah. Wherever you are, Craig Sheffer, you are excellent in this movie. So we then move back to the plane. Um, at this point, they're trying to get live traffic to the site. But Craven is being a little difficult. He's being a prima donna. He's being a prima donna, but as he says, it ain't easy being the Antichrist. Oh, that line is so good. He has many of them, and this movie has many of them. What what is the line? It's like, it's not easy being the Antichrist. There are all these pentangles and human, all those pentangles and human sacrifices. Like, you can't even say pentagrams. (laughs) And then inexplicably, he decides to go on stage for the first performance, and I think he says, let's hustle. So he that's actually his tagline that he repeats about six times throughout the movie. Okay, I, is, actually, I still haven't caught that. I only heard it twice in the movie. Yeah, I counted it this time. I think it's six. It's let's do the hustle. And <laughs> he says it, which like... What goth would say that? <laughs> what human would say that? I Somebody, I don't know, a boomer. That's who would no, say it. No, it's like a line from a Tarantino movie. Uh, what's that one in From Dusk Till Dawn? Let's get Ramblin' Ramblers or something? It's one of those lines. but That it, stylized dialogue, but here it's kind of making fun of it. But it makes no sense because he says it to his band before they're going to play. Yeah. Or he says it to them also before they get on the airplane. And then later on... It's the big, you know, rally line at the end of the movie. It's like, but it's his catchphrase. Yeah, he says it over and over again. And it's the worst catchphrase. So we go to his first performance, which I believe is Love is the Gun. Yes. And here's where it's clear that the editing, the cinematography, which uses uh, run and gun, shaky cam, uh, everything that's happening, it's shot like a music video. Here is where it's clearly, the movie clearly identifies itself as a parody of everything that is happening in front of you. And many of the things that were happening culturally at the time, goth music, heavy metal, 
the cross-pollination of those two things. Yeah, it it's very strange to think about an airplane terrorism movie that so it's obviously before 9-11 yes just barely though yes and so it's like this airplane terrorism movie where with goths with goths but it reminds me i so i may have brought this up on a past episode because it's like my favorite thing ever Mm -hmm. but so for those of you were who were you know alive during this moment which I assume is everyone listening. I was going to say, do we have listeners under the age of 20? I hope not. Uh, But yeah, you're going to have to send us your IDs if you want to keep listening. Uh, We are carding all future listeners. Yes. So when, when Antichrist Superstar came out, people were like the mainstream media was genuinely horrified by Marilyn Manson and shocked by him and upset and wanted to ban him. There's that great moment from I think it was the 1998 Music Video Awards where like Missy Elliott and a number of other rappers who were very into God are staring at Marilyn Manson and they're horrified because of his performance. So the climate in the late 90s around manson there was this crazy hysteria after columbine specifically oh definitely where he had to i don't want to say an apology tour because he never apologized for who he was he would just go around saying i'm not responsible because you know i didn't do this and these kids were fucking idiots yeah i don't know if you remember but there's this really insane episode of the bill maher show where he's on and you could tell that there's definitely some christian woman on there yeah uh, and you could tell that even Bill Maher is a little apprehensive. Like, everybody's a little afraid of him, except for fucking Florence Henderson, who, like, flirts with him. It's the adorable. freak, because she's wonderful. She's amazing. Bill Maher's always been kind of conservative. Oh, Bill Maher's super conservative. Yeah. But I, I guess my point is, by 2001, he wasn't really shocking anymore. No, and it was passe, because so many people had started imitating him and culture had moved past that i mean violence in media was definitely huge in that era and well, we were kind of all desensitized to it by that point so i or think the young people of that era definitely and i think this might not be 2001 it might be like 2003 or 2004 when hollywood came out yes the onion put out this fucking amazing article it's the funniest onion article ever written it's called marilyn manson's shock across america tour <laughs> and it's just in the article it's like instead of going and playing live shows he's just like driving through the american suburbs like crucifying himself on people's lawns and smearing shit on their front door so and it's just a geek show across america yeah and all these soccer moms are like oh that marilyn manson and so I feel like you're getting some of that in this movie where... Well, yes, because his concert is capped off by him fake electrocuting a fan. So they have an electric chair, Chekhov's electric chair, and it's placed there and he puts a fan in it and he electrocutes him. And they wait till the end of the performance when the hot news anchor who is a... A real life supermodel. A real life supermodel, but she's a news anchor for Z-Web dressed in all leather news anchor okay. and and freaks out if the camera is not on her at all times so she kisses the fan on the head he comes back to life it's basically an alice cooper bit it definitely is but it but it's playing off that idea of like shock for shock's sake yes because who does that besides you know a shock rocker sure and i think that's one of the things that's so much fun about this movie is that it's kind of celebrating that while making fun of it at the same time because it's like he is the hero once we find out 
the, one of the, the cravings is the hero and this yes. is where this starts things start to go off the rails not in the sense that like the movie loses the plot but in the sense that it gets batshit crazy it gets batshit crazy so they set up the fake execution but then as things progress one of the co-pilots so there are two pilots on the plane, one of which is Rutger Hauer. Oh, we forgot to mention this. A super drunk Rutger Hauer who a is having the best board. time but doesn't give a shit about what he's doing. He yes. just is like delivering this dialogue like it's... He has one speech uh, towards the end of his Ooh. time on camera, which is wonderful. But his co-pilot, who isn't anybody of note, walks out and begins arguing with Craven. And the Craven he's arguing with pulls out a gun and shoots him. But it's fake. Yes. And then the fake Craven threatens the slutty goth girl. And she's genuinely scared because he's a weirdo, I guess. I guess so. So Craven then decides he wants to kill someone old and boring. So he turns the gun back on the co-pilot and shoots him again. Except this time it's real. And that's where things begin to get fucking wild. Yeah, this movie is pretty wild. And he follows that up with another favorite line of mine. Now the party gets real. At, Which least, is, at least he doesn't say, let's do the hustle again. Well, it reminds me of that line from Bad Boys 2, shit just got real. Yeah, no, it, that basically I think is what they're going for. But I think this was before Bad Boys 2. That was what, 2006? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So we then, um, the director, the creepy, incompetent director cuts the live feed, pissing Craven off. Fake Craven, we'll just say that now. And Craig Sheffer then rehacks into the direct satellite feed. Yes. Or the plane. Because yeah. that's something you could do, probably. I don't think you actually could. We I don't think the technology in this movie actually makes sense. But I think that's part of the point. No, and it's funny because whenever I watch a movie like this with my dad, where there's any use of science or technology... Does he get angry? He gets so angry. Like, we watched, <laughs> um, I want to say Skyfall, the, the Bond movie that has this, like, huge hacking sequence in it with Ben Wishaw. And Is that one of the Mendes ones? Yes. And my dad, who likes Bond movies, he and I, I think, have seen all of them together. Just, like, put his head in his hand. and like he, It's like he can handle guns that do ridiculous things and cars that do ridiculous things. I was like, things. wait, that's the Bond movie that sets him off? Not Goldeneye or the 90s Bronson ones? So I think because it's specifically computer-related... It's just like so far away from what actual hacking is. That it's like my dad can't handle it. in advance of an avalanche and making it out alive. Yes. Or like uh, one of the later Bronson ones with the car that can drive on ice. I, I can't even. Or Brosnan. Sorry. I wish Bronson. That was a that was a total Freudian slip. Me talking about Charles Bronson. Bronson as 007 would have been something. No, he would have been a great Bond villain. Yes. So back to this movie where we do have a great villain. We have a great hero and a great villain who are one and the same. But the worst hacking. But the worst hacking. Oh, but okay. So, But the thing is, when he, so when Craig Sheffer, Craig Sheffer is kind of smart because he always knows what's up before it's happening. He's the first person to recognize there might be a fake Craven. He then notices that, you know, things are amiss here and there and everything that he yeah, does these is he's small details of, he's always ahead of everybody else except yes. for kate the kate, fbi Gabrielle agent Arnoir. this is where she shows up and arrests him she shows up as a pizza lady in a suit in a pantsuit and arrests him because he thinks he's too smart but clearly he is not he's found his match in her 
He sure has in more ways than one. What's the line that uh, when she introduces herself? Oh, yeah. He he calls her like Mrs. Pizza Lady or Mrs. FBI Lady or something. And she says, you know, my name's Kate and it's Ms. And or, sure no, 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 are. no. She says, and I'm a Ms. And he says, you sure are in the sleaziest. Like, it's so gross, but so, so good. The line delivery for Sheffer in general is like, he's he, the only one who's kind of like winking at the camera. He has the best dialogue in the movie for sure. But well, they both do. They get some of the best lines, particularly Anwar, Anwar who gets the best line in the movie and at the end. I think she, I mean, she's been in shows like Burn Notice and I mean, The Tudors, which is more serious, but. I think she also is well suited to that sort of ridiculous TV dialogue. So after that, they've noticed something is amiss. But the thing that clues everybody in, including Joe Montagna, who she has tried to warn, is there's a great cutaway gag to an FAA tower where they report that there may be an issue. And the FAA guy is like, nah, we're good. And then the whole place goes up bombed. Which the movie never really bothers to explain how that happens. No, they, it does because Montaigne says, "Oh, they have Craven, a man on the ground." Yeah, they have people on the ground helping them. But a- and we understand why later. But we're we're getting there. We do, but they never really explain it. Like, oh, so in general, I find a lot of exposition to be really boring and annoying. And this yes. movie just doesn't bother with exposition at all. It doesn't. It's, it's it doesn't incredible. tell you anything about anybody personally, their inner thoughts or emotions. It doesn't really no. go into explaining anything. Things just happen. So while this whole idea of Craig Sheffer, his character's name is Nick. So, you know, we should probably have mentioned that. Yes. So while the hacking angle might be super fucking ridiculous where he's able to hack directly into the plane. Into the mainframe. It. I've it, hacked into government computers. <laughs> Sorry, I had to quote Neil Breen there. It's just similar vibe, similar energy. Yes, except better. Um. It allows Nick and Craven to have one-on-one contact for the entire second half of the movie, which you you need. And the movie comments on that at one point, which is amazing. So at this point, we also are then introduced to the idea that Rutger Hauer is a terrorist as well. He's the pilot of the plane. I don't know how the pilot of the plane also turned out to be a satanic terrorist. But also, don't forget, uh, before Rutger Hauer is uh introduced the news lady the hot news lady yes she is also a satanic terrorist there's a satanic conspiracy afoot which that is maybe my single favorite thing about this movie like yes. you could have gone a more serious diehard route and have them be... oh i have complete notes on the satanic aspect of this some of which is based I in bet actual you do. urban legends i bet you do so after uh the news anchor and Howard are introduced as terrorists we find out the real craven has been stowed away in a cargo hold or the communications depot whatever they call it i'm not quite sure he's how in some it. fucking part of the plane but he breaks out also it must be the world's most giant plane yes it's it's a massive boeing or something it's Who like knows? bigger than air force one basically but he breaks out and this is when it turns into die hard on a plane with goths Craven establishes contact <laughs> with, with with Z-Web TV and then later Nick, the hacker, and Nick begins directing him through the plane with walkie-talkies. Like, Craven is on a walkie-talkie, no and that's not really how walkie-talkies work, because if you've ever used one, if you go out of range, which is usually like five feet, 
It doesn't work anymore. Excuse me, are you a master hacker? If you were, you could probably hack into some walkie-talkies. I guess I'm not, but... <laughs> you need the blue headband. <laughs> Craven begins his path of revenge. Um, but before we get there, we learn about the satanic cult. Which, this is the most fucking batshit plot explanation for where they're going and why and what they're hoping to do. I... I can't even do it justice. So Nick and Kate are watching, you know, watching what's happening on the plane and communicating with Craven. And Nick asks for Kate's help looking through the um, flight log of all of the passengers. And just somehow he noticed, you know, one of the dudes didn't look right. And it turns out this dude is in the FBI's most wanted list. And it's because he's part of a satanic cult. Guardians of the Gateway. Guardians of the Galaxy, but Guardians of the Gateway. And their website is just so much late 90s GeoCity GIF magic. It's the best. If you can think of like all of the best horror movie GeoCities or Angel Fire pages, this is that times 10. And it lays out their philosophy. What's that D. Snyder movie? Strangeland? Yes. Which also has awesome websites. It, yep. The, I don't know why that was just what we're going to have to cover Strangeland at some point. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> just talk about the bad goth websites. But the Gateway's beliefs are based on something known as the Stull Prophecy, which is an actual riff on a real urban legend for a cemetery in Stull, Kansas, which is alleged to be one of the seven gates to hell. This is something like this is a real urban legend. Are you serious? I'm serious. Um, when re researching this, I was looking it up. There's part. So Stull, Kansas has its own Wikipedia page where this is mentioned, but there's a bunch of, you know, paranormal sites that mention this, one of which I found was called The Week and Weird. And they mention that, so I'm going to read um, a paragraph from their description of this. The most widely accepted theory behind the origins of Stull's evil reputation is tied to both a large tree that once stood in the cemetery and an old tombstone inscribed with the word Wittich. The tree, it said, was a hanging tree for condemned witches who were put to death by the torch-wielding townspeople and the grave none other than the final resting place for the bones of Satan's child, who the legend says was born deformed and covered in wolf hair. Wow. Apparently, Stull, Kansas, the, the cemetery exists and there's a church there. It's very hard to access because it's private property, so a lot isn't written about it. But it's been a conspiracy theory since the 70s because um, a student newspaper in Kansas wrote about it, probably fabricating details. And it's no. grown from there. So fake news. I mean, this is actually probably my favorite part of the movie because it goes into that 80s and 90s satanic panic hysteria, but like divorcing it of all of like the weird unsavory aspects, you know, the child sex trafficking rings and all of the other stuff that actually the satanic panic was concerned about. Yeah. And instead, it's just, oh, by the way, the gateway to hell is in fucking Kansas. And all we have to do to open it is to crash this plane. We have to get 10 million viewers. Yes. And we have to, cr which, like, we have why to crash is the plane that? into a church? Yeah. Which that's Rucker Howard's job is to be super drunk and put on classical music and crash the plane. But it doesn't get into, like, any of the weird false memory syndrome or any of, like, the interesting but disgusting aspects of that era like actual conspiracy theories happening at that time um one i'll reference now the franklin cover-up which is similar because it's like the idea of a satanic ring influencing society and that inspired aspects i think of true crime uh true detective yeah. season one and other you know 
pop culture since then, but it doesn't touch on any of that. It's just like the cleanest, most wholesome version of that. It's just atheistic Satanists trying to, you know, set off Armageddon. It's window dressing, but it's amazing. It's a Bob Larson fantasy put to movie. Pretty much. Although at some point we're going to have to do a real Satanic Panic movie on here. Oh, believe me, I would love to. I... I've written about it. You have written about it. That's true. We've written about it from different directions. And I think we can probably post some of that with this movie when we post about it. But then Rutger Hauer is revealed to be a Satanist because he is the type of person I would believe would be down with the devil. Yeah, he has this sort of casual nihilism to his character where he's just, just in like, general. let's let it all burn. Yeah, just in general, Rucker Howard seems like the type of person like that. He does. I miss him. I'd like to believe that he just, you know, absconded to the satanic plane and he's there right now. So then we cut back to the plane where Craven is on a rampage and he encounters the news anchor. And it's revealed that all satanists know mixed martial, mixed martial arts because they get into like a fight and she's clearly kicking his ass. She kicks the shit out of him, which is another thing I like about this. It's, you know, the sort of hot supermodel. Who can fuck people up. Can really fuck people up. She also is a gigantic woman. Like, I'm sure she's, she's like. She's a supermodel in the 90s. I'm sure she's like a size two or a size four or something. But she looks like she's like six two. Like, she's, yes. a, she's basically sort of the poor man's. And I shouldn't say this because she is a famous supermodel. But. When you see her, she's kind of like the poor man's Rebecca Romaine Stamos. Like I can that's see that. sort of what she looks like. She's done a bunch of television work and actually she I thought she looked familiar. Her name's Monica Shinara, but she was in the Friday the thirteenth TV series, which is if I'm okay. wa- I'm sort of wondering if maybe she met uh Montessi there. Possibly. And that's how she got the job here. But their fight is paid off their to fight something is we great. saw earlier in the film because the real Craven this time executes a person in the electric chair by shoving a stray electric wire into her while she's sitting on the chair. Science. I mean, if a rogue wire, if you grab it, you don't die. You can kill people with it. You just Oh, totally. Them. Yeah, you can touch it yourself and be... Well, he's saved by the power of God. Yes. Doesn't he pray to God at one point? We're getting there. You're giving it away. <laughs> This sorry. was Chekhov's electric chair. I'm and we're sorry. Gonna get there. So I'm after, just excited. After the fight happens, Craven then breaks into the cockpit with Rucker Hauer, where Hauer delivers a weirdly beautiful monologue. Where up to that point, he was just kind of like bizarrely slumming it. Just bizarrely drunk on a plane. Yes. Um, but Hauer, again, showing off the physics of this movie. Because they want this to crash and Howard's like, no, I'm not going to do what you say. He shoots himself in the head, but it doesn't cause decompression in the plane. The bullet doesn't escape his skull. Well, there are other times where people are shot and that it's bullets like, don't go anywhere. Yes. Bullets don't go anywhere. Bullets people don't go anywhere outside the body. People can't hear it in other parts of the plane. Right. It's like, what? So he shoots himself in the head in the cabin and the plane doesn't decompress. And no one dies. But then we realize that Craven has to land the plane. Because this is a turbulence movie and that's how it ends. Yep. I don't know why that's why it has to end that way, but... It has to end that way. It's an airplane disaster movie. It has to end with someone heroic who doesn't know the first fucking thing about flying. But 
Okay, so how does someone who doesn't know anything about flying land a plane? Well, first you need a hacker. You need a hacker. A hacker who, instead of playing video games as a child, played with flight simulators, which is how he knows, A, how to fly a plane, B, how to fly this plane, and C, where every fucking thing on the dashboard is located without being able to see it. He downloads... I remember at some point he says he downloads like he downloaded like the flight schematics for the plane. Mm-hmm. So he's playing a flight simulator as he's helping Craven land the real plane. And I think the flight simulator is supposed to mimic the cockpit of the plane he's helping Craven land. Yes. Because that's also something you could do in 2001. That's totally possible. Yeah. In 2001. I, mean, I realized torrenting was a thing at that point. It had a different name. We were all using Kazaa and LimeWire and Napster. Yes. He, poor was, Napster. he was pirating flight simulators i which i don't think you probably could do in 2001 well and flight simulators taken from the actual airline company which yeah we're just gonna have a moment of silence for that but it's craig sheffer so we'll let it go then craven fights craven uh well because it i mean if you're gonna have a movie with doppelgangers or doubles of any kind they have to fucking fight each other and the way we identify the fake craven from the real one is the fake craven has short bleach blonde hair like he's lou reed in 1977 yeah he finally takes his wig off he takes his wig off and we see so i mean it's the same actor but i don't know how they did the fight sequence specifically i'm guessing they had the the real craven was just like he was the bad craven in that scene do you think? Well, so, okay. So the actor's name is John Mann. He's like this Canadian musician. Yeah. Um, my assumption is that John Mann played the bad Craven with the short hair. And they just had like a stunt guy who was a similar height play the good Craven. Well, I, because yeah, the wig, yeah, the wig is like in his face the entire scene. Right. So the good Craven wins. He locks the bad Craven in a closet and puts... A speaker in front of it? I think it's a drink cart, but it's not even a drink cart propped up against anything. He just lays it flat on the floor like the guy couldn't push the door Yeah, like you could totally get out of there. You could get out of that. So he goes and then sits back in the cockpit to land the plane. But he has to do it manually because the autopilot is off. And at this point, a real pilot shows up to another FAA center, walks in. Again, one of my favorite scenes, he walks in and he identifies himself by name. He's like, I am the pilot. I am Jack Hart. Here I am. I don't know why it's it, so I good. lose it every time I see it, but it's I just also ridiculous. don't understand how. So it's like instead of having the pilot talk directly to Craven, the pilot <laughs> talks to Nick, and Nick. Re- it's like the whisper down the lane of how to land a fucking plane. But they address this because the pl- the pilot says they have a connection, and if I get involved, he's helping him. He's doing the right things. If I get involved, they might crash. But then he still continues to give directions to Nick who then feeds it to Craven. Yeah, it really, it's it's, it's like, awesome. uh, it just, <laughs> oh, wait, we forgot about to mention one of my favorite scenes. Which is? When Rucker Hauer flies the plane into a lightning storm and blasts <laughs> classical music. <laughs> he addresses why he loves classical music, too, in his uh, final scene, and it's really bizarre. I couldn't get if the impression, like the intent there was to like make a connection to like what what classical music was he playing? Do you know? I honestly don't remember. I wasn't sure if they were trying to make like an allusion to him being a Nazi because of that. Because no. there's references to 
Craven makes like the does the goose stepping. So I wasn't sure if they were satanic Nazis. So or... it's definitely they're all blonde. It's definitely opera. There's a chance it could be Wagner, but I don't think it is. Okay. I wasn't sure if they were supposed to be like Aryan because even the fake Craven has like blonde hair. So yes, they are. That is sort of a weird, I guess it's a layer you found. <laughs> this is like an onion and I just keep peeling it back. A turbulent so, onion. So Craven lands the plane and he saves the goths. Which like wrap your brain around that one. Like goth diehard on a plane with a satanic cult as terrorists where the hero and the villain are the same person. And they're both Marilyn Manson. But not as hot as Marilyn Manson used to be. So then we, as they're landing the plane, we get probably my favorite scene in the movie as Craven. So earlier when he's walking through the metal detector, the woman who wants him down points out the cross, the upside down cross, and he says it's the sign of the devil. He calls himself the Antichrist. But the last thing he does before he lands the plane is he takes the upside down cross and he rips it off and he prays to God, proving the age old adage, there are no atheists in foxholes. Yeah, he... This is also where we know it's a parody. Yeah, which is why it's super ridiculous. We forgot... I think we forgot to mention the the flight is flight 666. It is? It sure is. That's probably tying into why they have to crash it into uh, still Kansas. Um, But after he lands the plane, we get another great scene. Oh, wait. What? My favorite part. Okay, so when they... When Joe Montana and the FBI guys first talk to the good craven on the phone they they're like how do we know it's you and the way that he proves (laughs) that it's him is he tells them how much he paid the irs in taxes last year because it hurt (laughs) it's like four million dollars or something another great line um when they're addressing when montagna and the real pilot who comes in late in the film are talking and one of the reasons he doesn't want to break up the relationship between the two he says something, the pilot says something to the effect of, they've got this weird, um, um, you know, and Montana goes, I know. Just <laughs> talking about like the special connection or bond that these two, you know, these two buds have developed. Because, you know, Nick always calls Craven the dude, you're the dude. But the first time he says it is the best because when they, they first start talking to each other and Nick explains who he is and says that he wants to help him, he's like, you're the dude. Or the chick or whatever you are. And it's like, all right, movie, you could be a touch progressive, maybe. It's very gender fluid, even for 2001. Especially for 2001. (laughs) So then we get, again, so I keep saying my favorite scene because every movie in this, every scene in this movie is my favorite scene. Yeah, me too. Sorry. I just say everything is my favorite. (laughs) So we cut back to Nick and Kate. And Kate being the professional FBI agent she is, she has to arrest Nick. Right. And his handcuffs him. And his response is the best. He says, I just saved a plane full of people. I just saved the world's greatest rock star. I just saved the world from Satan. (laughs) But then she starts walking off, just leaving him there, even though he's in handcuffs. And we're left to wonder why. Oh, well, because because even before, like, like 10 seconds before she arrests him and puts the handcuffs on him. He says, do you want to celebrate with some cold pizza? Meaning like the pizza she brought at the very beginning of the movie. Yes. And so he turns around to find her undressing. Like in the doorway to what is presumably his bedroom. And she delivers the best line of the movie. so perfect. I thought you said you were hungry. (laughs) (laughs) I 
love this movie. When I played that live for a crowd of people, that line got the biggest laugh of probably anything I've heard at any movie screening I've ever been at. And it wasn't like it was a huge crowd. It's just the line delivery Gabrielle Arnoir gives is amazing. She she is really perfect in that scene. But then everybody bangs. Literally every character finds like a relationship as they're walking off the plane. So oh, that's true. The, there's a cameraman for Zweb TV, and he finds the wholesome goth girl. The character who wants gets, to be a reporter who wants to be a reporter, which is the character who gets electrocuted ends up with the slutty goth girl. But then he also gives a great line. So they never mention the fact that when I was going over the history of Stull, Kansas, they don't actually mention the tree in the movie. But the dude who gets fake electrocuted says to her. He wants to bang under the tree, basically. He's like, I, I know a really good I tree we can that. hang out under. I only caught it this time. What? That's crazy. So it was like, there's layers and subtle references that you wouldn't know unless you actually like know all of the things that are being referenced. So I feel like that line in particular was just the screenwriter being like, I'm throwing this in for my own amusement. <laughs> so good. And then we end on a flash, uh, not flash frame, a freeze frame of Slade Craven. Which is just the best way to this end something. This movie like really this. is is perfect. This movie is the <laughs> best movie of the two thousands. Sorry, there will be blood and all of the stuff that always ends up on critics' lists. I really, this movie is the best. I really hated There Will Be Blood. I'm just saying a movie that people liked. I know. I'm not. I'm not putting any value judgments out there. I know, but I was going to insert one anyway. Okay, what is your favorite <laughs> movie of the two thousands? That is a good question. Um, maybe Amer. I didn't like America. Get the fuck out of here. Maybe Mulholland Drive. That would probably be I, mine Like as well. off the top of my head, I would have to think about it. I also want to say there's some really good Mike movies in the early 2000s. Like I think Happiness of the Katakuris is 2001 or 2002. Okay, but you're wrong because Turbulence 3, Heavy Metal, is the best movie of the 2000s. It's so good. It is the best. Oh, wait. So one, one more thing I did want to mention that... I didn't realize until doing prep for this podcast was this was the last movie ever made by Trimark Pictures. Really? Yes. It's quite and the way to go out. It's hell of a way to go out. So if you like grew up in the 80s or 90s. 90s and you rented a lot of movies from the video store, like rented early DVDs and you like bad horror movies, you definitely have seen a lot of Trimark Pictures movies. A like, lot of direct video movies in that era were Trimark Totally. They did things like Cube and Demon Warp, which is the best. Which is? Uh, the Dentist series, fucking Doom Generation, the Leprechaun series, some of those Warlock movies. And then they ended on Turbulence 3 Heavy Metal because they knew they could never release a better movie. Yep. The executives were like, okay. This is it. They were like, all right, so we put out Ken Russell's Whore and we put out Return of the Living Dead 3, but you know what? Hold my beer. Exactly. <laughs> Look. Ken Russell has nothing on Jorge Montesi. All right, let's let's let's, <laughs> let's take a step back there. Boy, Elder Skelter live on the net. So, two thousand one goth music. <laughs> this is the problem we had with two thousand three. Yeah, and so 
part of the problem with this show is if we're talking about a movie that came out in the 80s or 90s, there are so many options. The first half of the 90s, not necessarily the second. Sure, but if we're talking about a movie that came out before the 70s, we have pretty limited options. And a movie that came out later than 98 or 99, it's, you know, uh, unless it's something more recent, there's... It's sometimes hard for us. So, yeah, if you've, if you've never listened to the podcast before, we usually try to talk about our favorite goth albums from the year in which the movie was released. And it's really hard in 2001 because there wasn't a lot of good goth stuff that was put out that year. Yeah. It was kind of a down year. Kind of a down decade. Or half of a decade. Things got better as the decade went on. Sure. Um, so is there anything you want to talk about? <laughs> well, so I want to talk about three things. Okay. Number one, the Depeche Mode album Exciter. Which was a return to form for them. They had kind of been in a slump in the late 90s for various personal issues. Yeah, but I really like Exciter. Yeah, no, I enjoy it. That's and, why I said return to form. Yeah, and I, I think for me, they're one of those bands where they've put out so many fucking albums over the decades and the majority of those albums are good. Yeah, even if there's bad stuff on it, like there's usually one or two good songs. Um, and the other album is, it doesn't really count as like a standalone album, but Faith in the Muse put out this two disc collection called Vera Causa, which was my introduction to them in 2001. And I'm obsessed with it even still. And it basically, it's like the first, it, it's sort of a combination of B-sides and remixes and live and acoustic versions, but I think it's better than any of their standalone albums. So I highly recommend Vera Casa if you've never heard Faith in the Muse. You said there were three things you wanted to mention. Oh, yes. What's the third one? You might be mad at me because this technically isn't goth, but okay. 2001 is an important year for music books okay. because it's the year that Motley Crue released The Dirt, which is the best this, book ever. There's, that's not even what you would call goth adjacent. It, well, sometimes they were... Sometimes goth. they were black. Sometimes they wore goth appropriate they outfits. Heroin. They did a lot of drugs, which I have to say, if there's anything missing from this movie, it's that drugs. There's not enough drugs. There's no drugs. So there's not enough drugs. Yes. Like you could easily have some sort of side plot about the band being duped by the fake Craven because they're all fucking high.
Okay, so for me, it wasn't necessarily albums that stood out. Uh, this was a period where music had goth music and just pop culture. I'm not very fond of the early 2000s. A lot of what I was listening to, new metal. I unabashedly will say I enjoy some new metal. So I was listening to a lot of that. I was just starting to get introduced into lots of different kinds of underground subcultures, goth music, and other things like that. I had been into it in the 90s, but it's the 2000s is really, really where I was starting to become cognizant of what subcultures were. And so there wasn't really a lot of music that I enjoyed from that year in particular. There's the Depeche Mode album. The Damned also released an album, um, Grave Disorder, which is not good. Yeah, it's... song. They have a song called Song.com to show you how dated that is. Um, there do was you, a lot of... Do you remember when people used to say the bomb.com? I, I've heard people <laughs> use that within the last two years. Those people should be stoned to death. Uh, there was This was a big year for gothic metal. It's kind of where it came into its own. Moonspell, Lacuna Coil, all of those acts. And I hate them both so much. I, I really can't stand that like... I don't mind Moonspell. Lacuna Coil is definitely not something I'm into. That like goth... And so I, I feel like we've talked about this a little bit, but I love a lot of metal. Yes. But any kind of... Gothic metal. It's so bad. Yeah, I mean, so one of the things that I thought came out this year was Cold Chamber. Definitely not this year. It was the following year, which is gothic metal and lots of other stuff from that era. I thought Cold Chamber was like they were 96, of, 97. No, they were like, they definitely released stuff in the 2000s, too. Oh, oh, but like later albums. Yeah. So, I mean, they were a mixture of like new metal and goth stuff I would have been listening to. The two things I actually really enjoyed. One is sort of what you would call goth adjacent. Thank you. Stabbing Westward's self-titled album. I love Stabbing Westward. Their early records are fantastic up through 98 when Darkest Days came out. That's where they kind of started. I started losing interest in them. Uh, this album has, it's kind of like new metal. It's like their new metal album. It's going in that direction. It's new it's metal ballads tragic. for the most part. It's not bad. It's just not the heights of their industrial records. Goth new metal ballads. That's something I don't ever want to hear. Although I also like those earlier Stabbing Westward albums. Yes. Especially the first one. Exactly. So uh, there's a song on here, So Far Away, which I still listen to every now and then. Do you cry yourself to sleep to So Far Away? Occasionally. <laughs> um, and then the other album. So the other record that I'm going to reference, I'm actually not a big fan of the record in total, but... One song in particular, the band Hours, um, released Distorted Lullabies. Oh, no. Again, it, it wasn't new metal. It was kind of like Jeff Buckley meets goth rock.
So I don't know why I have an affection for that song. I think it's one of those songs, you know, you find when you're a teenager or late teenager and it just crawls its way into the back of your brain and periodically you're like, oh yeah, what about that? And so I'll still listen to it every now and then, but I think it's a beautiful song and it definitely has gothy vibes to it. Yeah, the way that him has gothy vibes. I love him. How dare you? I mean, come on. Oh, did they have a record in 2001? I hope not. Let's look it up. I mean, we have the capabilities of the internet. Let me see if they had anything, because I will totally... Are you going to hack into the mainframe to find information about when <laughs> when him released their albums? I am hacking into the direct satellite feed of the internet. <laughs> Let's see what they had in 2001. If I could get it to actually work. Holy shit. They didn't. Damn it. Oh, wait. No, they did. They had Deep Shadows and Brilliant Highlights, which had... Uh, what songs were on there? I don't even remember that one. I'm sorry I brought them up now. Yeah, so they they had an album that year. It definitely wasn't one that I remembered. I think I got into them around the time of Love Metal. So ours is where I'm going to leave you at. Okay, so before we wrap up, we we need to decide whether or not this movie follows the rules for being goth. It does. And if it doesn't, it does. I would actually probably agree with that. Let's start with the first one. Embrace the darkness. Absolutely. Slade, Slade Craven's... Slave Craven. <laughs> Slade Craven's big single is Razor Electric. That's dark. Well, and... He wears all black. You could also argue that it's basically a movie about a bunch of Satanists trying to crash a plane into a church and open the gateway to hell. So that's embracing the darkness for sure. sure. Rule two. Kill your fear. Lots of people get killed. He also literally kills his own double. And he kills his fear of flying. He literally lands a plane. Does he have a fear of flying? Yes. We're going to say yes. Did you just make that up? I don't know. <laughs> okay, let's go with it. Rule number three, live for death. Again, he's the a Satanists death rocker. Do. He's a death yes. rocker. He is a death rocker. This movie is the gothest movie ever made.